Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy with sex therapist Lori Watson and author of Wanting Sex Again. And I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Adam Matthews, a couples therapist. Today we're going to talk about teens and sex and how to talk to your teenage kids about sex, which teens is going to be fun. And sex, that is the that's the buzzword, isn't it? That's the scary thing. That teens is and, teens yeah, and sex. that's scary. Or it shouldn't be scary, but <laughs> it gets us fi- gets people fired up. I it, know that it can be really scary having lived through some of that with my teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've done it. That's on the horizon for me. And what do you think is so scary? What do you think parents are worried about? I think we're worried that they are going to do it. That they're they're going to do it and they're going to, all the consequences that are going to come out of that. Yeah, and don't um, you think even parents who did it yeah. as teens are still worried about their kids doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're scared to death of it. They don't want their kids to do the same things they do because I think people have so many bad experiences. Right, right. and, and, and like, we remember feeling immortal yeah. when we were teenagers and all the risks that we took. Yeah. And and now we know we weren't immortal, and we know our yeah. kids are not immortal. Yeah, you know, and it's certainly a scary world for people's entering, you know, the, a sexual life. Mm. You know, things that certainly when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, AIDS didn't exist. Yeah, AIDS did not exist when I was a teenager. You know, and nobody had heard of herpes. Yeah, you know, I mean, now eighty percent of everybody has genital warts. Yeah. Um, that wasn't happening. No. So, well, yeah, so those things, the rise of, and our awareness of it is so much more, like you're talking about, our awareness of STDs, of teen pregnancy, of abuse, of the things that can just result from teens very early on starting to experiment sexually and starting to explore that, that just, that gets us freaked out. It's all over the news. Yeah. It's all over the news all the time. It grabs headlines, right? right. It really, it, it really does. Right, and I think that very few parents can imagine that sex would be a good thing for their kids to have in their teenage years, you know, and have it add to their life, right? I mean, even if intellectually you can imagine that, there's still this fear that keeps us from 
thinking about it in a positive way. Mm. You know, and I mean, a lot of people I, I would agree with. I would agree that early teens, you know, the formation of the self is not there yet for a teenager. Yeah. And so it's it's probably more likely going to disrupt them than it's going to add to them. Yeah. And I and just want to insert here, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast where we talked about <laughs> how to talk to kids about sex before they're teenagers, I'd encourage you to do so because we talked a lot. And one of the things we mentioned there is about giving them some context for it, talking to them about when you think is the right time to have sex. And because we're not here to tell you how to decide that for your kids, but we are want to make sure we know how to talk to adolescents about sex because we tend to think that once we've had that conversation and we usually have it, hopefully before they're into the teen years of not seeing that as just a, as something that we is happens one time. Right. So how do we begin to continue that conversation into the teen years in a way that's healthy for them and really allows them to to talk to us about their their own fears, their own vulnerabilities about sex. Conversations about sex in high schools are happening like oh, they're, yeah. they're oh, yeah. it's all the time. Right. They're bombarded with those types of things. I, mean, um, I don't care what school your kid goes to. Yeah, right. Their peers are having sex. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, it is a conversation that's super important to talk about and also a conversation that I think by that age, if you have not had a constant conversation with them, they're unlikely to want to talk to you about it. That's right. It's going to be much harder. So how do you have, how do you do that? I mean, I, I would suggest that there are a million introductions to the topic of sexuality that can be ways that a parent can add something. And, mm-hmm. and that could be a television show. That could be something that they heard. That can be, quote, unquote, uh, the mommies were talking about this the other day, and uh, one of them had a daughter who X, Y, and Z did mm-hmm. this. And I was wondering, and the idea would be is start with open-ended questions. Yeah, You know, this was happening to so-and-so, and I was wondering what you thought of it. Mm-hmm. Or if any of your friends were experiencing that. It's often less threatening to talk about the kid of a parent that you know or Mm -hmm. heard about or your daughter or son's friends and what they might be thinking about this than asking directly, what do you think about this? Sorry, I have a cold, folks, so I'm I'm sounding kind of froggy. Maybe sexier, I don't know. (laughs) Raspy, the raspy voice. The raspy (laughs) voice. Yeah, that's me. So, I I mean, I think an open-ended question gets the ball rolling. And I think parents have to realize they have at least four years in high school to talk to their children and kind of take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. This Not everything needs to be said all at once. And I think we're so anxious about what's scary out there. We want to... You know, pound those messages. But gosh, this is a big conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really big conversation about what they're feeling and their feelings of love and connection with another. I mean, it is it it is scary. I I will say, um, I'm not sure who sang it, but it's like the first cut is the deepest. Who was that? I'm mad on those type of things. Trivia for five hundred with Doctor Adam Matthews. Somebody, somebody Uh, write in. Somebody write in and tell us. Maybe I want to say Guns and Roses. Maybe. Oh no, it's it's a woman singer. Cheryl Crow. Cheryl Crow. Cheryl, we love you. And and but I think there's so much truth in that. The first cut is the deepest because when our teens fall in love, they've never experienced rejection before. You know, they are just tender. 
tender little beings. And when that rejection comes, it is just, it kills them. It hurts so bad. And if we say to them things like, well, you know, you weren't going to marry that person anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. get over it. But with an adult lens, instead of realizing, oh, yeah. You know, that first heartbreak, oh, it is hard. And so we want to comfort them and be with them in this. And again, I mean, I see the greatest thing about sex for me. This is my, you know, my bias is when sex and love is combined. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that's what I'm thinking about. And obviously we're talking to primarily committed couples, but, you know, that's that's the greatest gift. One of the things that you're saying is, when we are talking about love and about the, for lack of a better word, the teen drama that goes on around relationships that I think parents are likely to write off or get frustrated by, um, like you said, because we just want them to get over it. We see it just, it's so easily. It's anguish for us to see our kids in anguish. So we just, what we want to do is repress that. Oh, just, just, just just brush it. it off. It's nothing. But when we're talking to them about that, about love and relationships, we're also, we're having talks about sex. We can't ignore this, the explicit sex talks, but it's supporting those love conversations, those conversations about relationship. We're supporting a healthy view of sex when we enter into right. those and have those conversations. Right. And I mean, sex, when we have orgasm, oxytocin is released and that's a bonding chemical. Mm. We actually do bond with the person. It's, I kind of think about, you know, the hatchlings, right? Mm. Whoever the baby duck sees after they first hatch, that's their mommy. Well, mm. it's kind of like after you have an orgasm, whoever you're lying next to, you know, you, you see that person as your, you know, your love, mm. your romantic partner. Yeah. And I think that that is, really important. And and I do think that there is a difference between men and women. There is a difference in terms of how boys enter the sexual experience and their expectations and how girls do as well. Um, <clears throat> oh, I have so much to say about this. I mean, I, I list on my form, you know, what was your first sexual experience like? And I read these. And one of the things that feels sad to me is that 90% of the women who write an answer to that question, the answer is negative. Mm. It was painful. You know, I just got my I got my virginity over with. You know, I didn't even know the person. It was rough. I mean, very few of them write in, and yeah, it was with a long-term boyfriend. We'd been dating for a year already, mm. and, you know, we had sex, and it was fumbling, but, you know, I loved him, and he loved me, and yeah. it was really great. I mean, I get that answer hardly ever. And whereas the male answer is very frequently, it was exciting, it was great. You know, I don't know what happened, but it was it was really fun. Didn't last you very know, long. But it was didn't there. last very long. <laughs> I don't know if it went in. You know, I mean, really, but yeah. but I think that men often have a better first experience than girls do, mm. and you know, they're having sex at about this age, at about teenage, which. One, I think if we can wrap our heads around that our children are going to be having sex, we need to talk to them a little more explicitly about, you know, what makes a good sexual experience. And maybe we ask them, you know, what do your friends say makes for a good sexual experience? Now, I'm not talking about the 13, 14-year-old teen. I'm talking about the 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 19-year-old teen who is in relationship or who is about to be in relationship or who friends have started to go steady, mm-hmm. you know, it's time to really talk with them about that. And also to talk about the other, you know, the mm-hmm. hookup and what we feel about the hookups, which by and large, I am way against hookups yeah. for this reason for women, because most of the time the girl doesn't have an orgasm. 
I mean, most of the time, like 10% of the time, does she have an orgasm, whereas most of the time the boy does. And it's like, what is she doing it for? I, yeah. I understand there's excitement about being desired, but I really don't get it because she doesn't get satisfaction. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, again, it's just sort of, I, I just don't get what she's getting out of it. And yeah. I talk to young women about it all the time. And many times, still, young women have a narrative about romance. I'm hooking up with him. He had sex with me. And therefore, he's going to want to marry me or he's going to want to date me. Yeah, that this is going to be some kind of long-term relationship. relationship. Yeah. And no, that is definitely not what the, the male population is saying. You know, I talk to college students all the time and I get to talk in intimate settings as well. And they're not saying that. They're saying, yeah, it was great. You know, I had an itch, wanted to scratch it. Yeah. Well, and I think, for too, for the male part, I think that that is... And you tell me, you tell me if I'm off here, but it, it feels like when we're not having those conversations with our boys as well, um, that are becoming young men, that, that sex is becoming more about how often about the quantity rather than the quality, um, the conquest, the conquest, the, how many partners have I had? How just the sheer numbers, it becomes a competition because men tend to turn things into competitions rather than about affection and about love and about care and about a mutual experience. It becomes about a singular experience just for me and what I get out of it. And and I think that that creates a lot of young anxiety in young men believing that they're left out of the contest because Mm -hmm. they haven't had sex yet or because that they haven't had sex with as many partners as they believe their roommate at college has or whatever. And, I have a really interesting study that was done at the University of Michigan. And basically it said they took a study and they asked, how many sex partners do you believe your roommate or your best friend is having? And how many have you had? And the answer was they all had had on average of two sexual partners, Hmm. but they believed that their friends or roommates had had four. So the reality was everybody had had about two sexual partners, but their belief was that everybody else was having double the sex that they were yeah. having. Yeah. You know, and that puts a lot of pressure on young sure. people like, wow, I'm being, you know, I'm being left out because yeah. I'm not having this. And as parents, yeah. we can talk to our kids, we can bring the research and and we can, I mean, I don't I don't want it to be about bringing the research only. I want it to be a long conversation, but we can be reassuring. Yeah. Well, and, and two, let's just, let's just all get on the same page. Men lie about their sexual conquest. Sure. (laughs) We just lie. And so like, that's one of the things that perpetrates that myth um, that makes me believe that my friends are having more sex than I am that gets put out there is yeah, that and I think they lie this. in part because there's a lot of pressure yeah, absolutely. that says they should be sexual animals, mm. right? That that's what being young and male is, is to be full of sexual desire and to be, you know, spilling that all over. And that they should always want sex, that they're right. all, they should always be thinking about sex because that's what it means to be male. And so that, I think when we begin to have those conversations with our kids, we begin to counteract some of those some of those myths that exist out there. I think so too. And, you know, I had three sons and we had lots of conversations about it. I did talk pretty freely about it with them. And I mean, they asked me everything from, you know, telling me about the the issue with the particular person mm-hmm. to, you know, mom, I, I don't think I'm very good at it. What do I do? And, mm-hmm. 
you know, of course, I'm a parent as well as a sex therapist. And so, oh, well, here's a good book. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I want there to be appropriate boundaries too, yeah. but I want to answer real questions. And, you know, I did talk to them about, you know, it's not all about intercourse, intercourse, intercourse. It really is about how you touch her. And do you know where the center of her sexual universe is? It's her clitoris, not her vagina. Yeah. I mean, I was able to say those things pretty frankly, you know, just in a frank sort of normal conversation. Um, You're not leaving the education up to the school system. Or right? or up to their or peers, peers or up yeah. to their experimentation, you know, so mm-hmm. that they would know. Or, or God, up to porn. I don't want them to learn it from porn. That was another thing I told my, my sons. And we did have protective, you know, mechanisms on our computers at home. Yeah, but obviously by the time they go off to college, that's all gone away. But I said, really? Really, really, you know, pornography does not teach you about real sex. Mm -hmm. It teaches you about a performance. That's not how real people look usually. And it's often not how real people respond. Because I said, give yourself a chance to have your own first experience so Mm -hmm. that you're not measuring yourself against everything you've seen. You know, Mm -hmm. and do I think my kids have seen sex, you know, porn on, on computers? Probably, absolutely. Some of them I know have. You know, but I, I wanted them to have a chance at feeling something. Mm-hmm. You know, people kids are clicking into a performance. I read something the other day. A young woman said, you know, when I'm having sex with someone, I start to feel pleasure, and then I remember how I ought to be acting. Mm-hmm. And I try to act like those porn girls. And it's mm-hmm. like, how tragic is how that? How awful is that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, she doesn't get to feel her body. She doesn't get to experience the sensations of her body well and that, that reminds me of like one of the two things that are happening in uh adolescence that is affecting these things one they are flooded with emotion they're flooded with hormones that are just making their like it's emotionally just confusing and so helping them make sense of those things it really helps support healthy sexuality yeah. and then the other thing is and i was dealing with this with a client the other day who is they are searching for an identity. And if we're not stepping in and having the conversations that you're talking about, there is a chance that they find that identity in sex. I was talking to a young lady who began having sex when she was in middle school and it became a full fledged identity for her where she was not able to express her emotions or talk about those, her, her wants and her needs in a relationship because she, and she readily admitted it, I expressed it through sex. So I dealt with mm-hmm. when my uh, boyfriend cheated on me, I dealt with it by having sex with him or mm-hmm. I dealt with it by having sex with somebody else. Um, right. And it became, it became a real issue for her because part of that identity had formed during her adolescence and nobody was there to talk to her about it talk or her ta- it. talk her through it, talk to her through the pain of that initial breakup uh, with a boy or talk to her about when her high school boyfriend cheated on her on the school grounds and where everybody knew about it. Yeah. Right. And so like those type of things wow, we're talking about. Ab- so painful and so complex mm-hmm. by the teenage years and often so silent from the parents, like no, intervention or no comforting asking, word yeah. you know from their parents no relationship probably with their parents enough that they could bring this to them and i think that's what we want to do um let's come back to this yeah. adam because i think this is so important and i i think what you said so many parents don't want to imagine yeah. that their daughter could be going through that and so what they are telling them are things like just don't do it mm. you know and blanket messages 
that are not necessarily conversations about where the child is really at. You know, their, their fear, perhaps their moral stance, whatever it is, is blocking a real relationship with their teen just when the teen needs it the very most. Yeah. So you're listening to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy with sex therapist Lori Watson and Dr. Adam Matthews, couples therapist, and we will be right back. Wanting Sex Again, How to Rediscover Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage by Certified Sex Therapist Lori Watson. Each chapter is designed to fix one of the problems that cause low libido from early marriage through the childbearing years, even all the way through menopause. I've also had men read it and tell me that for them, it was the most hopeful thing they read about resolving sexual problems. Look for Wanting Sex Again on Amazon.com. You can also talk to Lori Watson for therapy in person or via Skype. I offer couples counseling and sex therapy, and I think about both aspects of the relationship, emotional intimacy and sexual technique and that combination together helps marriages be happy improve your sex and improve your relationship with awakening center for couples and intimacy find out more at awakenloveandsex.com and sign up for their next couples retreat weekend hosted by Lori watson awakenloveandsex.com awaken what's possible Welcome back to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. This is sex therapist Lori Watson and couples therapist Dr. Adam Matthews. And today we're talking again about teens with sex. And Adam, you had such a sweet thing to say. Tell that story again. One of the things that happened growing up, especially when I was a teenager, my parents would write us a letter on our birthdays, tell us all kinds of those mushy parent type things. For the most part, you know, just kind of roll my eyes through it. And uh-huh. um, my mother sent me one when I was seventeen or eighteen. I can't remember. She sent it through an email. An email was just starting to become a uh-huh. thing, and so I was sitting at the computer lab at my school, looking oh, no. at this email from my mother. And they always started the letter by, you know, seventeen years ago at this time I was in the hospital getting ready yeah. for the, all that kind yeah. of stuff. Reflection. And in this one, she said that typical thing. 17 years ago, I was in the hospital and I can't believe that it's been this long. And she said, I also can't believe that 17 years and nine months ago was some of the best <laughs> sex that you and me and your father have ever had. Whoa. You know? whoa. And, you can't see me, but my eyebrows just went up <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah, You're in and, the computer uh, lab thinking, oh, my parents had sex. Oh, my God. I know. I'm in the computer lab and I fell out of my chair at this point yeah. I'm on the floor and hiding the screen because I'm afraid people are going <laughs> to see it um, click click no take right. that off take yeah that that's off. right and uh, after my I got parents. over kind of the trauma <laughs> the mini trauma <laughs> in my mind of that several years later um, I yeah. realized that uh, looking back on that realizing that what a formative thing it was to have your parents tell you in a healthy appropriate way that sex is good for them you know yeah, that sex gosh. is not a bad thing for them that it's what enjoyable a, right um and then and it made me remember that my parents you know did things like they kissed in front of us you know uh. and they didn't they didn't get upset or or stop because of our eye rolls or our groans uh-huh. you know like, i mean they were demonstrating this mm-hmm. appropriate sexual warm passionate relationship mm-hmm. and then telling you about it too yeah. 
at an appropriate age, which is incredible. Yeah. Even though that I'm sure as a 17 year old, like, oh, gross. Oh, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. oh and know? I think as parents too often, when our kids do that, when they blah or they eye roll, uh-huh. like we stop and we don't right. push through. Like, I don't care if you're eye rolling, you're going to hear yeah. how awesome sex is that we still have a good, healthy sexual relationship. Yeah. And I think that this is important to our conversation. Also, as we think about teens and talking to them about sex is, so often it's the other way around, right? Parents yeah. have come to a halt sexually or the marriage has kind of cemented into problematic areas, sex often being muted or, you know, boring or something because people have not been courageous about keeping their passion alive. And then they see their teenage kids full of passion. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Full of this sexual energy, and it's kind of like the juxtaposition against their own lives you know, they, they can't remember, they don't want to think about it. It's almost like an in your it's face. Too much. Yeah. You know, an in your face. And and we wanna say you know, we wanna pull them down, right? Well, you know, it isn't something that lasts, it's not you know, you need to be responsible and grown up like we are mm-hmm. to kind of control your passions. Yeah. yeah. But your parents, you know, what a different message saying, Hey, we are sexual still. Mm-hmm. And enjoying it and conveying that message. I mean, that's a context, I think, for our teens having sex that we can say, you know, in a long term committed relationship, this can be a really good thing and formative in the ways of thinking about their choices now. I mean, one of the things I believe that comes up is what happens when the teen is making choices about their sexuality that don't match the parents' vision and projection for what the kid should be doing. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. You know, maybe the kid is coming out as a a gay young person, Mm -hmm. or maybe um, they're having sex earlier than you really think is appropriate, or, or God forbid, they're having dangerous sex, right? Yeah. You know, you find out that they've had sex with multiple partners and haven't used protection. And I mean, it's, it can be really frightening and it can set the stage for a power struggle, an area of a power struggle mm-hmm. between parent and child. You know, what do you mean? You, you know, you came home at two o'clock in the morning and you don't want to tell me where you are. You know, I mean, this, this is a tough time for parents in so many ways, also in their marriages that is often a tough time, you know, as yeah. children are leaving and going off to college you know, the divorce rate kind of spikes, you know, people who stayed together just for the children, maybe they don't have enough energy to have these conversations with their kids. And so, you know, they ignore it or they, or they just get angry and they have the power struggle instead of the conversation. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that keeps coming up is having that conversation, having a safe place where they can have that conversation 
where, of course, parents are going to have to draw boundaries that they think are appropriate for their kids. But when we automatically go to punishment or we automatically go to condemning as opposed to going to conversation and what is going on here? Why are these things happening? What are you, what, why are you making the choices that you're making um, and exploring those conversations with them? I think it then becomes, they're not going to stop the behavior. They're going to continue to do it. It's just going to go underground and you're not, we're yeah, not going to have right. access to them to be able to, to help try to shape and mold what is happening with them. I would say one duty of the parent is to set appropriate boundaries structurally around things that are important. I mean, for me, I always wanted to know who, what, when, and why you're going somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when are you going to be home? And, I mean, we set up a trusting system early on. I mean, my kids, it was negotiable, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. okay, it's prom night, so maybe the curfew is a little longer. But I wanted to know where they were going to be, and I wanted to know where they were going to after prom night and which parents were going to be there. And I called those parents, like, is there going to be drinking allowed or not? Because drinking and young people and late night hours, mm. that's a combustible sort sure. of situation that I was not up for. Yep. I know one parent recently came to me and said, my daughter is going over to so-and-so's house after the prom, and she's a single parent, and I'm not sure she has the same value system. And I say, why don't you volunteer to go over and help? You know, that that mom has got a bunch of kids come in and she's going to need help serving. And that provides more stability without putting the kibosh on it, without, you know, telling that other parent, I don't trust you to, you know, appropriately be with my kids. And and I said, and, and why don't you ask your daughter, you know, what what are the expectations here about who's sleeping where? And um, because I guess it was like a spend the night mm. after the prom. And is it going to be a mixed crowd? And is there going to be alcohol allowed? And what do you feel about this? I mean, it needed to be a conversation because she said her gut instinct was no, Mm. you are not doing that. No way. Absolutely. No No way. She knew that saying no was going to set up a power struggle with her daughter. And it was like, okay, are there other ways that it can be conversational? Yeah. And that's exactly what she did is she went over, she helped. I don't think she actually spent the night, but she got there early the next morning with donuts you know, there was an agreement with the parents, and I believe at that point her daughter actually came home with her, and she brought her back for breakfast, you know, just because the daughter realized there was really no place to sleep and everybody was sleeping in it. And, you know, it was a same-sex-only sleepover. Right. You know, so it wasn't as bad as she thought it was going to be, and she found a way to support the other parent, you know, to have the conversation with the kids about what it was going to be with boundaries. But, I mean, I definitely called the, the parents that were hosting parties for many, many years. I mean, probably through the years my kids were seniors, but by the time they were seniors, they knew my value system. And and I trusted them to tell me that it was going to be the way it was going to be. Yeah. And and you're having these conversations all through those years that's setting up you to be able to trust them and them to be able to trust you and for it not to, for it not to be, not to be a power struggle. Like for instance, the young lady that we were talking about in the first half of the podcast, she didn't have anybody like that. And so Mm -hmm. she had to trust her friends and trust her, like wrestle with it herself in her head about how she felt about sex, how she felt about what she was doing, about trying to make sense of the shame that she was feeling as well as the enjoyment that she was getting um, from the sex. And honestly, the control that she was experiencing, um, she found it to be something that she could use with boys and with men. And so those types of 
things that she was not able to have those conversations with any adult to help her make sense of what was happening. Cause as we've talked about, like all that stuff going on with teenagers is happening at once and they don't have, they have very little way to make really good sense of it. Right. And this young woman finds that she can use sex as a tool rather than that being an expression yeah. of love and excitement and pleasure between her and her partner you know, and how sad is that? You mm. know, that without the guidance of a loving parent who talks her through that, who can talk about it, I mean, so few parents are willing to believe that their teenage kids are sexual and having complex relationship with their then partner. Yeah. Um, they don't even want to think about that, and so they don't talk about it and well, ask. You want to say, it's not my kid. Yeah, it's I, not going right. to happen to my kid. I mean, I will say one of the most painful things I remember is when one of my um, late teen children broke up with their girlfriend and, I mean, literally sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and lost like 15 pounds, a child who could not stand to do that. I mean, was was so brokenhearted. And of course, it you know, I believed it had been a sexual relationship. And, you know, that first cut is the deepest, mm-hmm. what was so true. And, you know, I was so glad and honored to be able to have that conversation and hold this child, literally. I mean, my 18-year-old son, literally holding him, you know, as he's sobbing and saying, you know, I have never felt so awful in my whole life. Mm. It, nothing has hurt like this. And being able to comfort him, even though it was terribly frightening, you mm. know, just to see your kid in that much emotional pain was terribly frightening for me yeah. as a parent. But I was grateful that we had had a history of conversations and openness that he could literally, at 18-year-old, crawl onto my lap and cry and sob and and have somebody there to comfort him. Yeah. Well, and I think what you had to power through, any uncomfortableness you felt about those conversations over the course of his adolescence... Right. And right. I think that's like, uh, we had to, we have to do that. We have to be, it's, we, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy conversations. It's going to be, but it's necessary conversations. Yeah. Like this is, this is such a necessary part of parenting in adolescence because it is such a, it's just, just so prevalent and it is your kid. It's, you know, they're going to have to deal with it. Um, but we have to power through our discomfort and our own anxiety in having those conversations. Yeah. I want to add in something that I have seen in my practice is the difference, particularly for young women, the way that we we don't imagine that they have desire of their own. I mm-hmm. mean, we charge young women still to this day with being the breaks in the relationship, assuming that the mm-hmm. young man is Cannot. the engine. The engine, you know, she's the one that we expect to say no to sex and we don't ever help her with desire. And then we grow up, you know, we have this crop of women who are older who, I mean, who don't have desire, Mm. you know, but we've set on and charged young women with the, that they have to say no. And I, I was, I read from this guy, Daniel Steinberg, and it was the erotic impulse. He was the editor and he says, You know, girls are taught that sex is their enemy. Sex is a beast, a male beast. They must tame the beast. Lust is unfeminine. Mm. You know, and I think that's true. And I I had a patient who his wife had low libido, and that was one of the central complaints of the marriage. And, you know, she wasn't as experimental as he wanted to be, and he wanted some pretty normal stuff. 
And his daughter, at the same time in the treatment, was, I don't know, she was an older teen, young woman, and she had a boyfriend. And he had this conversation with her, you know, about that this boy only wanted her for one thing. Mm -hmm. And she came right back at him and said, Dad, I'm the one who started it. I'm the one who initiated the sex Mm -hmm. The sex between us, and her father was just like, "Oh, that's crazy. That that can't be true. I know young boys. I know what they're made of." Mm. And he was committed to the idea that a young woman could not have sexual desire. That it, mm. it was all started in the young man, you know. And I think this is a crazy, twisted up world, you know. Mm. I mean, in the in the need to protect the daughter. Right, he was shutting down the her very central, yeah. true self of saying, "Wait, wait, I have sexual desire. It's it's coming in me. It is in me." Yeah. And and the father was giving her the message: that's impossible. Sexual desire resides in young men, not in young women. Mm. You well, know, and the think about the that's a dangerous message to send to young women, and the the implication for. Young men is that they cannot stop it, right? right? That it's they impossible. that they have to rely on the this female beast. to control it, and so it's it's just an, it's it's just downhill. That once it's started, it's just downhill. And how dangerous is that for our this culture? Our culture where and, we are and just how seeing old our, is this message? Yeah, it's so old. I mean, like, in our uh, modern world, how old is this message? Well, it just it, I think it really twist um, and then you add on top of that some really bad sexual experiences that they have nobody to right. talk to them to make sense of it and you it's no wonder that we end up with such a high degree of sexual assaults especially in college right and that, that we are that we are seeing because partly there's this message that they can't that men are the only ones that are sexual and they need they need a release for it and they can't stop it once it starts right I mean I I think you're right I don't know that it, that exactly follows, but I think what I'm hearing you say, Adam, is that there's some message often of entitlement mm-hmm. that is conveyed to boys of, we get it, you're sexual, it's a beast, it can't be stopped. And we don't give them the message that they absolutely need to have self-control. That's right. You know, and that they need to respect, you know, no, and that they need to get consent. Mm-hmm. And so there's an entitlement and a narcissism that somehow our culture or the parents or you know, the message is conveyed to the young man that unfortunately, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't stop because he gets the yes from a deeper place. Like, Mm. I deserve this. I'm owed this. And then there's, of course, the date rape, the rape culture, all of that. You're right. It's a really scary thing. And you can imagine, you know, you have young girls. I mean, I'm sure that's scary out there. Uh, And I have young boys and had young boys. And I mean, that was one of the things certainly I conveyed to them yeah. was that, you know, they needed nearly written consent <laughs> from their partner, yeah. that this was an agreement. And I would say, I mean, I've just been delighted to meet their young women partners and girlfriends. And it's, you know, it's been a joy of mine. And I don't ask questions, but I kind of assume at a certain point after they've been together for a while that they're going to be sexual. And I think what I hear from them is that, Sex is important to them. Hmm. A couple of them had a conversation with me. I remember we were up at Chapel Hill, which is where my kids went. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, yeah, I could hook up. I could join that. It doesn't feel good to me. I feel very empty about that idea. And, you know, I mean, in some ways I had conveyed 
my deeper value and they had taken it inside them that to me sex the best thing in life had to be combined with respectful loving romantic relationship you know and so they really weren't interested in the hookup culture and they were normal young men you yeah. know they were totally normal guys anyway and and of course my husband I know had multiple conversations with them as well I don't want to leave him out of this. I mean, yeah, he sure. contributed a lot of good things, but well, and I think that what we're talking about here is developing healthy desire. Again, going back to that, the joy first of sex and yes. being able to talk about our own joy in sex and displaying that and talking to our as kids parents, about that as parents right. and having having, having first, a sexual relationship that is solid is the best message yeah. that we can give our children about right. sex, about we, healthy sex. I think that's a good point because we we have to realize we are sending them a message about sex. Whether, whether we say t- it or not. That's right. Whether we talk about it or not, we are sending them a message about sex. Right. And so the, having that healthy relationship and then beginning to build a foundation where we have short and long conversations with yes. them and as adolescents. And I love what you said about bringing in their opinion. What are they thinking about this? What are they thinking about these situations? All right, and allowing them to kind of, as adolescents, where we don't, maybe as kids, they're not forming their own opinions quite yet. We're telling them more. In adolescence, it seems, and tell me if I'm right about this, that it seems to be more of a two-way dialogue rather oh, than a one-way so dialogue. Oh, so important, Adam. I love what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think it's it's a two-way conversation. And I think we should give people here, right at this moment, open-ended questions they can ask their teenagers. Oh, yeah, I love that. You know, so how about saying, you know, hey, um, you know, I know kids at your age are sexual. Do you, you know, are you having friends that are entering sexual relationships? Hmm. And what are you thinking about that? What are you hearing at school and at other places, messages that you're hearing about sex, and how do you feel about those? Right, and I might ask, have you heard of any kids having bad experiences yet with maybe sex and drinking have, have any of your friends or friends of your friends or people had that remember we want to help them not by putting them on the spot ah uh, yes but by giving them a way that they can talk about maybe their feelings without it i i had a young teenage girl who came in for many reasons it, it had to be a structural problem with her anatomy that had to be repaired and i said to her she was about 15 and i said you know you never probably get to sit with a sex therapist very often in your life. Do you have any questions? Nope, mm-hmm. not a one. And I said, well, we have one more meeting. Why don't you ask your friends if they have some questions? Mm-hmm. And she came back with a literal scroll <laughs> of questions that her <laughs> friends had yeah. about sexuality. So sometimes you can say, you know, um, I'm always an open book for you about sexual questions or yeah. relationship questions. And, you know, even if your friends have questions that, Maybe you'd like to know what I think about those questions. I'd love for you to ask me them so we can talk about what your friend is going through. And you don't even have to tell me the name of your friend. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we want it to be safe. We want it to be open. Mm -hmm. And also maybe saying, you know, if I can direct you to some good material about the sexual relationship and love and relationship, let me know. Mm -hmm. And I might even purchase some of those books, read them, feel comfortable with them, you know, within my moral frame that this is something I would want my kid to read mm. and have them available. Maybe put them on the shelf. 
Yeah. I, I have noticed a few of my sex books gone missing. <laughs> you know, that I later found in the box <laughs> underneath, you know, the old play clothes in my kid's closet. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was careful. I made sure that those were books that appropriate um, books, were right, appropriate yeah. books, right? Yeah. And what do you think, too, about it? It seems like when we encounter sexual messages in culture, especially ones that are relevant to them in TV shows and movies about asking them about what they think that character should do or what they think that character is feeling or, you know, what do they think about this decision that they made? Right. My Um, my favorite TV show was Friday night lights. It's probably uh, on on uh, Netflix Netflix for sure. And I mean, we watched that through the teen years and absolutely every problem of the teenage years comes up on the show. Mm. And sometimes my son would stop the show and say, mom, I need to talk to you about something. Wow. I mean, it was, it was a great conversation starter. I mean, it was a very moral show, you know, the husband and the wife were the love story of the whole show, which is so different than, you know, usually when it's the teenage kids, but really the central love story was the coach and the school counselor. And I mean, it was a great, great show. I mean, salt and light is how I saw those people in their community, Mm. the way they interacted with their teens. They had good open conversations with their kids as well as setting good, appropriate boundaries and having healthy expectations. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. That, Having conversations about the culture with our kids is super important. Yeah. I hope that that's helpful to parents because it's helpful to me. It's helpful to me. I do too. I'm, I'm bookmarking this podcast and coming back, <laughs> coming back to it in three years. <laughs> three years. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Those foundations that we talked about that we've laid over time are really going to pay off for us in the teenage years and, right. and being able to have those conversations, not being fearful about that. Like we can have confidence in talking about sex um, with our kids and with our adolescents and really be, that's okay. That's good. Yeah. It's good and important. Well, that concludes today's talk on telling your teens about sex. And you're listening to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy with sex therapist Lori Watson and couples therapist Dr. Adam Matthews. Thanks for listening. Hey, help us stay on top here at Foreplay. We'd love it if you would subscribe and share it with your friends. And please take one sec and rate and review us. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.